First of all, let me thank uh, Tim for recounting the story of the prodigal son so amazingly. We appreciate that, Tim. I think it sets the scene uh, beautifully for what I want to say today. The um, US Declaration of Independence in 1776 said, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. The annoyance to uh, Chris in this movie was that in his his son Christopher's childcare centre they couldn't spell happiness right and they spelled it with a Y instead of an N. But we've been looking at this Pursuit of Happiness movie and there's been some themes that have come through in the movie over this month. And we've seen Chris pursuing um, happiness and contentment and satisfaction Um, and ultimately here he's reflected on all the things that he hadn't achieved and then he does achieve something that was really... uh, uh, amazing, and he's, he calls that part of his life happiness. But you know, happiness, uh, as we've talked about and as we discovered, and Ali's referred to it as contentment overall, um, it's an elusive thing. And I wonder may, whether maybe the more you pursue happiness per se, uh, the more elusive it is. You know that last Wednesday just happened to be International Day of Happiness. How was your last Wednesday? Was it a good day? I only realised the day after and I thought I'd been a bit grumpy on Wednesday. (laughs) Anyway, I've got another year to work up to it. But I looked it up and I I found out a bit about World Happiness Day. And there's a thing called the World Happiness Report. 132 pages, sort of done sort of by the, um, the United Nations. And if I can get this thing going, well, let's just have a look at a slide here. I'm on. I'm going the wrong way. Yep, sorry. I'll go the right way now. There, the World Happiness Report. That is it. That's the front cover of the World Happiness Report. And it lists six key factors that uh, contribute to happiness. I've got them down here. The first is GDP per capita. Um, The second is healthy life expectancy. The third is social support. They ask a question just with a yes or no answer, and the question was, if you were in trouble... Do you have relatives or friends you can count on to help you whenever you need them to help you out? Or not? So yes or no answer. The the fourth one was freedom to make life choices. And the uh, question was, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with your freedom to choose what you do with your life? And then the next one was uh, generosity. Have you donated money to a charity in the past month? And the last one was perceptions of corruption. And the question was... um, is corruption widespread throughout the government or not in your country? And is corruption widespread within business or not? And yes or no answer. And these were the results. And the, the amazing thing to me about this, and I don't know how they work these things out, you look at that, that light mauve bit at the end, which varies, that's a thing called dystopia, which is the opposite of utopia. And they've somehow come up with this factor that... Uh, You'd have to read the report to understand what it's about, but it, it varies. But anyway, that, that staggers me that the countries in the darkest, coldest part of the world seem to be happy, which hasn't really been what I thought was uh, the reality in some of these places where it's winter a lot of the year. Anyway, Australia comes in at number 11, but uh, that's just by the way. So let's just, let's just all try to be really happy for the next 12 months and see if we can lift that, get Australia up into the top 10. You know, we, we, uh, I'll leave that up there, but we crave, don't we, true happiness and contentment. 
And uh, I think every one of us would say that, that that's something that we'd really love. Uh, and yet, as I've said, happiness and contentment is often uh, elusive and it's really confused in our, our media-driven world. Uh, I think I mentioned before in a, a book by uh, a local pastor, Mark Sayers, called The Trouble with Paris. He says that um, he, he paints an image of our, our world um, and the media paints an image of our world as really so uh, infinitely more appealing to us than the reality of our actual experience. He calls it hyper-reality. It's this that we're being exposed all this all the time to things that are better than real. You know, so we see uh, people whose lives in the media, they, they look so much better than our lives and we, we crave after what we're seeing. So, for example, we see the, the woman who uses the same uh, shampoo as, as you do, but she's so much more attractive. Or... The, the, the family with the same number of kids as you have, but they, they just look happy and, and satisfied and together. And uh, you see the man who, who um, uses the same multivitamins that you, as you take every day, but he seems to have the ability to hit the ball clean out of the MCG. And you also see the guy who uses the same deodorant as you do, but he seems to uh, pick up girls who look like supermodels. And we ask ourselves in the midst of all this, how can my life of getting up, going to work, shopping for my groceries, washing, doing the ironing, cleaning the toilet, putting out my rubbish, how can that sort of a life ever compete with this sexy, slick version of life that is presented to me in this world of hyper-reality? And so the message we're being fed is that if we're able to, if, if we're to have the sort of lives that are, are worthwhile then we need to imitate the lives that we see in the movies, in advertising, on TV and in these lifestyle magazines, then we'll be happy. And the trouble is that these lifestyles are not real. They're illusions. I was listening to someone uh, this week and they're saying that if the grass looks greener on the other side, it's probably AstroTurf. And uh, (laughs) the the reality is that we we trade our, um, our, our version of reality for a false... Uh, reality and it always seems to be just out of reach and there's this happiness that we're craving but it's just around the corner and we're never fully satisfied and I wonder as Tim shared the story with you this morning whether you realise that this is actually not a new problem Jesus' parable that we've been looking at at this month from the angles of the younger son the older son and the father includes two brothers who in quite different ways are deeply dissatisfied with their lot in life. One of them pursues happiness through the way of self-discovery. I'm going to leave all the things that are familiar to me because I'm going to make it on my own. I'm going to find out where the real life is. And the other pursues happiness by way of moral conformity. I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to do all the things that are expected of me and then I'll be happy and then I'll be pleasing to the people around me. And according to this parable, both of those approaches are wrong. I love the fact that Jesus tells this story of the prodigal father in response to the Pharisees' indignation that Jesus would be hanging around with tax collectors and sinners. It's pretty clear which brother in the story represents the Pharisees. You know, we've seen, I think, pretty clearly this month that true happiness is found when we come home to the Father, and in this story God is, is represented as the Father, true happiness is found when we come home to the Father 
and whether we identify more as reckless younger sons or as self-righteous older sons, we're going to find contentment and real life when we come home to the Father who wants to embrace us. Now, Tim shared... I want to just share three things particularly about the, the father this morning. Maybe there, there's, there's a lot of things you could say about this father, but just uh, three particular words. And the first is that he, he was a vulnerable father. You know, if you're a father or a mother, you open yourself up, don't you, to deep hurt when you love your children with a deep parental love. Those of us who are parents, we've uh, experienced that. We want the best for our children. We want them to do well. We want them to stay well. We want them to have health. We want them to have good relationships, all those things. And when we see them uh, suffer, it hurts. And we see this father who, it says, there was a man who had two sons and the younger one said to his father, 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 give me the share of my estate. So he divided his property between them. As Tim told the story, he elaborated on the feelings of the father. In the, in the, in the version, passage in the Bible, that's all it says. He says, Father, give me a share of the estate. And he divided his property between them. Tim gave us beautiful background to that. It was as if this younger son is saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. I want what's coming to me, not later, but I want it now. I'm not con- concerned at all about the shame I'm going to bring on your family. And I'm not going to be around to care for you in your old age because I'm going to do my thing. So that's the younger son and in a, in, a, in a similar way the older son stays but he doesn't understand the father's love. And you know when it comes down to it it's incredibly vulnerable to have a child and you leave yourself vulnerable to a, a broken heart in ways that nothing else can. And God who we so often think of as big and strong and mighty, we sang that if we were kids in Sunday school, my God is so big and strong and mighty there's nothing my God cannot do. To think of a God who is vulnerable is foreign to us. And yet God, how vulnerable is he that he would breathe into dust and create you and me in his own image, that he'd bring humanity into being, his own children that he loved. That was to leave himself so vulnerable to a broken heart. What a risk God took in creating you and me, giving us enough freedom to be creators and destroyers, makers and breakers, giving us enough freedom to either choose to align ourselves with him and his ways and follow him or to choose our own way and make a mess of things and turn away from him. What freedom, what vulnerability, freedom that gives the Father grief when we leave and joy when we return. You know, this word prodigal, uh, we often use it of the son because we see him as wasteful and yet we can use it just as equally of, of the father because he was recklessly extravagant in his love for his children. So I want to talk about that word prodigal now, the prodigal father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, the younger son, and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
And so they began to celebrate. You know, isn't it recklessly extravagant for the father to do as, as Tim shared, for the father to discard his dignity and run into the road towards his foolish, immature son who has squandered his inheritance? Isn't it recklessly extravagant for the father to throw such a raging party for this kind of wayward son? And yet also how recklessly extravagant the father is towards the older son, this kid who never left him, the one who's always done everything right, the kid who's clean cut, went to uni right out of high school, came back to work in the father's business, the kid who feels entitled, the kid who when he sees others not pulling their weight quietly thinks, what slackers? The kid who feels entitled, who can't stomach going into a party to celebrate the return of his messed up brother. When we read the story, we don't warm to the older brother, I don't, but at the same time I recognise the ways that I can be a little bit like him. But how recklessly extravagant is the father who says to that kid, everything I have, (coughs) everything I have is yours. What risk God takes on us. You know, some of us are children who've wasted everything in in living just our way and some of us are children who begrudge the, the very thought of grace and forgiveness being extended to people who we absolutely believe don't deserve it. But this is the risk that comes with love. This is the father who doesn't do a risk assessment. This is the father who takes no account of the cost but who runs, runs towards you, runs towards me. Runs to us and says, my child, you were lost but now you're found. Come home. third thing I want to talk about is the impartial father. As parents, we don't want to have favourites, do we? There's a little bit of a um, a funny thing goes on in our family because my son, who's in the middle, um, he likes to propagate the story that Rebecca, who's here, is the favourite child. And um, he, he builds the... He's been building this over time. I think it actually goes back to the fact that in kindergarten, Rebecca made a a FIMO big heart that Heather religiously wears every Mother's Day. And so that just, for Johnny, it reinforces to him that the favourite child has got the brooch on again. (laughs) And yet as parents, we try so hard, don't we, to not have favourites. And you know, I reckon if you were the father in this story and you'd had that son who'd stayed home and done all the right things, it would have been hard not to have treated him like a favourite. And yet there's incredible joy that the father expresses at the return of his younger son who'd been lost and was found, who was dead and was now alive. He couldn't wait to celebrate. That doesn't mean that the older son is forgotten. As soon as he's aware that the older son is home, and isn't at the party, the father leaves the party and goes out to him because he wanted the older son to be part of the joy. You see, God's love sees the uniqueness in every one of us without comparing us. God doesn't have favourites. He's an impartial God. And yet we live in a world that's just so competitive, don't we? And we can't help but make comparisons uh, with it, we, between ourselves. We see someone praised 
and, and we feel less praiseworthy because they were getting all the praise. Or we see someone rewarded and we ask, well, why, why didn't I get rewarded? And the elder brother compares himself with the younger one and he becomes jealous and the heart of the father responds, my son, you're always with me and everything I has, have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Ali mentioned uh, a book that we've enjoyed and there's some copies, I think, available today if you want to buy them. I think they're $20 by uh, Henri Nouwen. And he writes um, in this context, he says a little bit of preamble before what's on the screen, as long as I keep looking at God as a landowner, as a father who wants to get the most out of me for the least cost, I cannot help but become jealous bitter or resentful towards my fellow workers or my brothers and sisters. But if I am able to look at the world with the eyes of God's love and discover that God's vision is not one of of the stereotypical landowner or patriarch, but rather that of an all-giving and forgiving father who doesn't measure out his love to his children according to how well they behave, then I quickly see that my only response can be deep gratitude. You see, the one who tells this story of a vulnerable prodigal father is Jesus. He's the one whose life, death and resurrection demonstrated the extravagant love of God the Father, not through violent conquest, but through vulnerability, through suffering, bringing about forgiveness and through resurrection. Jesus, as he lived on this earth, he experienced the whole range of human emotions. One Bible writer even notes that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. And we ask ourselves, what was that joy? It was the joy of seeing his children come home, of seeing those whose hearts had been selfish and arrogant, transformed by his death and resurrection, to live life in a new way, a way that would begin to show the world how God had intended it to be, a way that was full and rich and meaningful, a life content, home, what a, what a fantastic image of home we have in this story. <clears throat> One of the early um, church, um, I suppose you, he was a uh, theologian and philosopher, St Augustine, he lived in about the 300s, 400s. Um, he said about God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And I wonder if you're sitting here today and there's a restlessness about your life. I wonder whether it's that you haven't actually come home to the Father, the Father who calls you lovingly to come home to him. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. And you know, the full life, the content life, the meaningful life, the purposeful life for any one of us is only found when we come home to the Father who loves us and in Jesus who gave himself for us. As I close, I just wanted to uh, share with you two invitations. The first invitation is, is what I've just shared with you. If, if you're not sure about whether you belong to the Father, whether you're actually a child of the Father, the Bible talks about being born again into the family of God. Each one of us can become a child of God. In, in John chapter 1 it says, To all who received him, who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he came, gave the right to become children of God. 
And the invitation is for you today. If you've never taken that step and said, God, I want to be your child. I want to live your way. I want you to be my father. I want to come home to you. I'd love you to think about that today. If that's something you're thinking about and you want to talk to someone about it, I'd love to talk to you about it. And lots of people would love to talk to you about it. I know Ali over there would. The people in the prayer corner would. That's the invitation of the Father. Do you know him? He invites you to come and join the feast. Come and celebrate. Welcome home. The guys are going to sing a song at the end um, in a little little while and it's called I'm Going Back to the Father. Back to the one who offers forgiveness for all that I've done. And he runs to embrace me and he calls me his own and I'm home. Beautiful song. You'll enjoy it. As we're singing it, I wonder if you're still not sure about whether you belong to the Father. You might just reflect on that. Secondly, for for those of of you who know the Father and who've been living life with the Father, the, the, the challenge is to become like the Father. Jesus said, you must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. In this story of the prodigal son, we have an amazing picture of a, of a compassionate father. Paul in Ephesians 5 says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. So if we say that we're children of the father, we have a responsibility to imitate the life of the father. Imitate God in everything you do. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Hear from Henri now and again. He says this, My final vocation is indeed to become like the Father and to live out his divine compassion in my daily life. Though I am both the elder son and the younger son, I am not to remain them, but to become the Father. Every son or daughter has to consciously choose to step beyond their childhood and become Father and mother for others. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if you call God your father, we're to become not just the ones who are forgiven, but the ones who forgive. We're to be not just the ones who are being welcomed home, but the one who welcomed, ones who welcome others home. We're to be not just the ones who receive compassion, but the ones who offer it as well. We're going to share communion together. Uh, in a little while. The band's going to come up and as, as they uh, play a song, I'm going to invite you um, to just go to one of the tables. There's four of them, one over there, one at the back, one over there and one over there. And on those tables you'll find um, some bread and some juice. If communion is something you're not familiar with, there's some little cards on the table that explain it. You might like to pick one of those cards up. What you do, you go to the table, you just pick up a little bit of bread and a juice and you return to your seat and you just reflect on what Jesus has done. Jesus actually instituted this feast at his his last supper with his disciples and he said, when you take the bread, I want you to do this to remember me. And he said, when you take the, the cup, it's a new covenant in my blood. It's an agreement. Do this. To remember me. I've poured out my life. I'm going to pour out my life as a sacrifice to you. And this is an opportunity for you to remember. 
And so that's the, the uh, challenge for us this morning as we share communion. This final invitation. If we're children of the Father, we need to be becoming like the Father. And maybe as you share communion this morning, as you thank God for what he's done for us in Jesus, you might like to just pause for a moment and just give yourself to him again. Offer yourself again to God and say, I want to become more and more like you. One final quote from Henri Nouwen. He says this about Jesus, who... Oh, just just some background. This only now, and he spent um, an incredible amount of time focusing on a painting by Rembrandt uh, in St Petersburg in Russia, in a, a museum there, or a, yeah, a museum. And in his book, he he reflects on all the things that actually came through his mind as the story became real to him, and he came to see <clears throat> that Jesus himself became something of a prodigal for us. And he says this, he left the house of his heavenly father, he came to a a foreign country, he gave away all that he had and returned through a cross to his father's home. And all of this he did, not as a rebellious son, but as an obedient son, as a true elder brother, if you like, sent out to bring home all the lost children of God. Jesus is the prodigal son of the prodigal father who gave away everything the father had entrusted to him so that I could become like him and return with him to his father's home. As the guys sing this beautiful song, I just encourage you to leave your seat and uh, share communion. You might like to help the person who's next to you and uh, return to your seat and just eat and drink when you're ready. Thank you.